Hey, welcome back to In Light of the Gospel, episode 14. Today I'll be talking to a friend of mine from Alberta named John Giesbrecht. I met him through the internet, but he did grow up in this area, in the Tilsonburg, uh, Delhi, Simcoe area. And I think uh, you'll really appreciate his testimony. He's a very talkative fellow. Him and I could go on for hours and hours. We agree very much doctrinally, theologically. We, we thrive on the same types of teachings. We love the Bible in the same way, it seems. And I don't know if you know what I mean, but every now and then you come across someone like that where it's like, we click, you know, we, we see it the same way. We understand each other's minds and hearts. And, and I'm, you know, I'm glad not everybody is like that. I need people to balance me, but him and I would think very similarly. And we discuss his testimony, his lifestyle, his upbringing, and how he came to faith. But then we also get into a little bit more of uh, stuff from this book, the Catechism, and uh, the Mennonites' way of doing communion versus what the Bible teaches. And so I think you'll be challenged and blessed by it. I really hope you uh, like it and uh, are, are edified by it. If you uh, feel, feel, feel led to do so, I ask that you share these videos with your friends and families and subscribe to the channel. I do appreciate you tuning in and I appreciate you coming along for the ride. God bless. For those of you that don't know, this is John Giesbrecht. I'm Dan Blatz. We uh, have been collaborating on a few YouTube things in the past. John has a YouTube channel with um, John Bolt. Sorry, what? Uh, John Bolt. John Bolt. There we go. I can't, can't believe I forgot his name. So John Bolt and John Giesbrecht and a few other guys, they share a YouTube channel called Bible Truths. And it's uh, gained a bit of traction for sure. It's got several thousand views and uh, reaching a lot of Mennonite type people, even some Hutterite people are listening, listening in. So it's a real joy to be a part of that. And then uh, having the opportunity to now share John on my channel. So for those of you that are not subscribed to Bible Truths, I'd encourage you to go over there, especially if you're from a Mennonite uh, background. We have a lot in common that way. So I didn't know John at all growing up. John's a few years younger than I am, but he did grow up just around my area and now has moved off to Alberta. So I'm going to kind of pass it over to you and let you introduce yourself, where you came from, maybe a little bit of background on your family, and uh, eventually how you got saved. Yeah, so I grew up in, actually born in Simcoe, Ontario. That's where I'm born, uh, raised, lived most of my life around um, uh, fairground, cultus area. My parents, like most, a lot of Mennonites did when winter hit, we moved to Mexico. And uh, so I went to a little bit of school in Mexico, Fibla, Kakism, uh, all, learned all that stuff there. And then winter, uh, summertime comes around, we went back to Ontario. Um, I did, we did this about until I was like eight years old. So when I was eight, we moved full-time to Ontario, started going to school, started going to Houghton, Houghton Public School. That's where I uh, went to school probably from grade two to grade five or six was it and then after that we went to the school in Walsingham the old colony school okay so that's where I went to school for a while there then uh grew up in the old colony system um turned when I got to my teens got really rebellious like I think a lot of them do get really rebellious got into partying got into a little bit of drugs uh didn't get too deep into it but uh got into a little bit of drugs and um just, yeah, 14, 13 years old or whatever, uh, started smoking full-time. Because wow. I know out there, out here it's a little different, but I know like out there you could go to uh, bootleggers and, 
and you know an Indian reserve and buy smokes from them. Out here, it didn't work that way, right? So when out there, you know, we had uh, I had older friends, always had older friends, so guys that could drive already. So we would head out to get smokes and was a full time smoker. Went to uh, the old colony school in Walsingham and and went behind the gym and smoked, right? Um, what, what do you, if you don't mind me asking, what do you chalk that up to? I was raised old colony, and I. I had no desire whatsoever for smoking, for alcohol, for drugs, for parties. I had this desire to impress and to be a good, good old colony boy. But I was born and raised in Canada. You came from Mexico. A lot of times the, the Mennonites that came from Mexico seemed more legitimate Mennonites, right? Like they followed the rules in some ways more closely. And yet I find a lot of people, even the ones that are in Mexico still, they get way more into that party lifestyle than, than we ever did. I think it was also the people that we were around, right? Like I think with friends and then I had older siblings that got into it. So I'm one of the youngest actually. So um, I had older siblings that I started seeing that from them and they almost influenced me. And that was just kind of a thing when you were, you know, 12, 10, 12 years old, man, oh, you desire to be like your older siblings. You desire to be like, you know, the people that you, you are around, you're influenced by. So I think that's why it turned to that. And I started stealing smokes. I know my dad smoked, so... You know, I went and grabbed his smokes and started smoking, or he would throw a smoke down halfway. Well, you know, little butts, I would go and grab that and <laughs> smoke that up. And oh, I just had smoke too, but I had no no thought of it. Yeah, see, I, I guess I, for me, it was just because I seen it and it influenced me. And I'm like, and this is the cool thing to do. This is the the manly thing to do, right? So as a little kid, I was always walking around with a stick in my my mouth, you know, acting like pretending that I was I was smoking, right? So interesting. And it, and then, you know, you got a little older. I remember grabbing, I wanted to start drinking and we were small. So I remember grabbing, rubbing alcohol and, and, and a Pepsi, getting, getting drunk off of that, right? Because oh, I'm like, this is, the, this is the cool thing to do, right? But that's kind of how I uh, grew up, really rebellious. Like I said, I started going to, to parties or what do they call the bunch or whatever at a very young age. And uh, I was a wild kid. I'm a very... Uh, charismatic personality i would say so i always loved the attention i loved uh being loud i always got me in trouble a lot of times but uh i was always the one hey guys let's go do this let's go do this let's go make some trouble let's go do this i was always kind of the guy that wanted to get everybody else in trouble as well right so that's kind of the attitude that i had uh bully i was a big bully in school not proud mm -hmm. of it if anybody's watching sorry if i bullied you um yeah so in school, I was definitely when we went to Walsingham School there. I they dropped me in a lower lower class because I think their mindset was when you came from a public school and you went to their school, their school was so much higher education that you would have to drop. But my grades were good when I started. My grades were very good actually. Like I got ninety eight percent, ninety seven percent. But I think that also did did more harm than good. Yeah, I can see that. Because I'm, I was the oldest, one of the oldest kids in class, so I started treating everybody way younger, younger than me. I start picking on them and and you know do things that you know I shouldn't be doing to them. And I think that really, really harmed, did more harm than good that they put me in a lower class like that because I was kind of the leader now because I was older, right? Sometimes that my wife taught at the old colony school for a while too, and I, I would say that let's say you're you're 12 years old and they put you back one grade because you're just not quite there. I can understand that if you can't keep up, but sometimes the old colony school would take like a 12 year old and put them in grade one. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if they did that in Walsingham, but in Elm yeah. Road Colony, you'd have these big kids with the little kindergartners and it was super embarrassing for them. Yeah. And I think that's what happened here. I think I, even from some other kids that were in there that were older, they were more rebellious because it's almost like, well, they, they, nothing is expected from them or the stuff that's expected from them is just as much as from the kids. And it was easy to meet that. So it's almost like they, you know, even for my grades, like I could easily keep up with the schoolwork. I, my grades were, were good for the first little while after I got rebellious, I didn't care anymore. But so that, that did a lot of harm that kind of, you know, started picking on kids, you know, bullying. I wasn't hanging out with the kids in my class. I was hanging out with older kids. Right. And also, you know, so now here I was the, I don't know what age I was, but going to parties, smoking, drinking, and being around little, little kids that were two, three years younger than me. Right. So I think it did, did more harm, uh, me growing up that way. So mm-hmm. I got expelled from school. Actually, I got, uh, wasn't a good kid, got expelled from school. Um, I remember actually when I got expelled that they really wanted me to make it good. And then they brought all the old colony preachers, uh, one evening, my, me and my dad had to go there, brought all the old colony, uh, preachers there. And, uh, I had to pretty much confess my fault. So they would take me back. Right. So I think that was a big embarrassment for me, but also almost a little bit proud of that because how bad I was, you You know, bragging rights. Yeah, now I have some bragging rights, so I, I it didn't really didn't really change anything, right? I just I don't I, I don't think I went back to school after that. I just wanted to work. So early age, uh, I think I grew up a lot faster than I should have. Um, I worked full time, um, well, I shouldn't say full time, but on farms here and there, and went to parties, drinking. When did you quit parties. school? When what age were you done? I think it must have been around 14, 13 or fourteen. Yeah, I think around that that age. So I think it was only like grade five or six at that time. But then what I did is because I think, I don't know if Ontario is still like that, but they didn't allow you to go work when you were that age. Yeah. So I, I actually went went to Valley Heights uh, during evening uh, school then, right? Okay. They had like this evening thing there. And then I started going to Valley Heights in the evening, right? So um, didn't learn much there, but. Just to, to do the formalities. So at the same time, you were getting into the bunch and hanging out with boys and girls on the weekend and starting to make trouble outside of school too, eh? Yeah, yeah. I got into uh, parties and, and, you know, we went to different parties. Like I said, we started drinking a lot, uh, getting involved with other girls and did things I shouldn't have done. Um, it's not a good kid. Like, you know, I, and there was always guilty. I don't, don't get me wrong. I didn't, it's not like I didn't have any conscious that, I didn't feel guilty about doing these things. I I went home and I'm like, man, I hope I don't die. 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 Because if I want to get older, I want to get older to the place where we call being white for and getting baptized at the old colony. I'm like, let me get to that point. And then I want to die. Right. So, but I don't want, I'm not old enough to do that now. So let me just live my life as crazy as possible. And then, you know, it's like, I had that conversation with God. Right. But like, it's, that's not an uncommon thought process in the old colony Mennonite. Like, you can't get out of it, but you just hope that you'll live long enough to make it okay. Yeah. So and that's, you know, we grew up, I probably until I was about 16. So two, three years like that. And for some reason, and I, I think the Lord, I don't know what happened here, but when I was about 16 years old, I begged my parents who wanted to move to Alberta for no reason. I had, I had, it wasn't like I had some enemies or nothing like that. I had people that I was hanging out with. I wasn't, 
you know, I got a lot of, a lot of the time I was center of attention, all that stuff. But for some reason, I'm like, I want to get out of here. And I started begging my parents that we wanted to move to Alberta. And to this day, I'm like, I don't get why, like I had everything there, but it's almost like I wanted to get away from it. I, I had some cousins in Alberta, but not that I, you know, thought that I was going to hang out with them or anything. But so at the age of 16, um, just about 17, I begged my parents that, Hey, let's move. And my parents kind of wanted to anyways, they were looking for other work. It was kind of hard to find work out there and stuff. So then we moved out to, uh, Southern Alberta and the same thing. I got involved with some crazy guys again. Um, when started, then I didn't go to so much parties, but then we started going, uh, to bars and stuff like that, where we went to strip bars and other clubs and stuff, even though I was underage, I always found my way in there. You know, I would steal IDs. I would get my way into, into, to bars and stuff like that. Right. And then I started going back to parties and I thought they were boring because now I've experienced, uh, you know, going to strip clubs and bars and all that stuff. Right. So, you know, now going to a party was like, this is boring. Let's go do something else. Right. Can you imagine now having, if you had continued that lifestyle to this day, all the things that you had at one time thought were exciting would be boring and you'd have to keep adding to it and adding to it. And who knows what kind of lifestyle you'd be up to at this point. eh? Yeah. And that's what it was because I, to me, it just even started getting boring Sundays. I was hanging out with, it was just me and a couple of guys hanging out, watching movies because parties were boring Friday nights and Saturday nights. We went to bars and even that was kind of getting boring and stuff. And I'm like, man, I got to do something. I got to go find a, a girlfriend or something. This is, you know, this is really boring. You know, you, you had, girls every now and then you know that you just one night thing but it 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 didn't satisfy right it was one of those things that never never satisfies your flesh you can do this and this it's fun for a while but then it's like i gotta go more extreme and that's how i can see a lot of people get into deeper drugs or something that satisfies satisfies their flesh a little more right so yeah so you you uh you were still old colony in in alberta too right yeah, so that was a big thing too for us because when we moved to Alberta, the old colony is way different than it's in Ontario. More so staunch, have, more religious. Yeah, more religious. They're more like Mexico. Like they don't have any leans on their benches. Wow. <laughs> You're sitting down there, and and we went. The preachers use those big tall boots, or no? Yeah, yeah, they use the tall boots. Diving? Yeah, yeah, that they use that. So it was quite a bit different, even for us to come here. I know when we were when we left out there, you could still understand a little bit. They would put the pot each in there. When we came out here, they did a lot more high German. And uh, like I said, you got more tired in there. Uh, the singing, they did a lot of easing. So that was different than than out there. So it was quite a bit different. And I didn't like it. Like, I just, I'm like, wow, this is, we should just go to something that was a little more like Ontario colony, even though I was living a rebellious lifestyle. I'm like, I just did not like it. Right. So, but yeah, that's where we went. Um, I think at the age of 18, I quit smoking. Uh, so started, I quit going to clubs, bars at the age of 18 when I turned age. Uh, so I, I got started getting religious then I'm like, man, I got to do something with my life. I, uh, I got to change. And about, yeah, age 18 started putting away smoking, started putting away drinking, started putting away, you know, pornography. I completely quit pornography at 18. Um, not saved a religious man. Wow. Um, I remember That's not no not easy watching, task. No, I remember not watching a t- watching TV. My, you know, we had a TV in the house. Kind of grew up with my mom, you know, throwing out her TV and then bringing back in a TV at me or Dave or or my other brothers, right? So I completely quit quit watching 
um, uh, TV in the house, no TV. I would, I, I was a good boy now. And, you know, I met my, uh, which is now my wife and I was so religious. So her dad was actually, uh, an old colony, uh, and, but he was not nearly as religious as I was. I was an extreme religious man. So when I started dating her, she had to completely change. Like I would tell you, I would tell her what to wear. I would tell her, Oh, you can't have this man. I remember she was a Calgary flames fan, like a hockey fan. She had flame stuff everywhere. And I was scaring him like, man, would you like, if you're, Husband, the flames like this. This is like hell, you know, like just just a oh, religious man. man. I don't <laughs> get how she married me, but she did. So um yeah, I just she had to completely change. She would we wouldn't uh watch anything, like we wouldn't watch TV, but we had other issues that we thought I think you mentioned this in, in your testimony too. Sometimes you seem to be good, but you were doing things with her that I shouldn't have done, right? Like for me, me and my wife, well, it was my girlfriend then, but we were doing other uh, uh, sin that people didn't see, right? But yeah. when when we were outside, we I don't I couldn't even. I was a very jealous man, so I didn't even like to go out with somewhere. Man, she talked to another guy or anything like that, I would be kicked. Like I, I was an angry man. That was one thing. I was a very very angry 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 person when uh, when I got religious. It was weird. I got rid of all the other stuff. Stop watching porn, stop watching movies, didn't train, didn't smoke, uh, didn't cuss, but I had an, an, an anger issue. So got completely religious. Um, I remember even my dad um, going to old colony, he said to me, he's like, hey, John, you're going to have to let that rope go a little bit. You're too religious, right? So because I'm like up to T, I stopped, you know, we got uh, sprinkled or baptized. I... Every sin that I could think of, I go. I went to Ontario and I confessed, you know, things that most people probably wouldn't. Right? I'm like, oh, I'm gonna do it right. I'm going to heaven here. I'm building a, I'm building a bridge, man. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make myself to go to heaven here. So I went and confessed everything. But the issue that I still had had an anger issue, right? So we got went through that whole being mindful and uh, got married shortly after. First years of marriage was absolutely terrible. Uh, I was, like I said, an angry man. There was times that I, my wife did something that just the littlest thing that take me up, I had grabbed her and pushed her against the wall and screamed in her face. So I was, a man, sometimes it was like, she, and she knew this before we we got married, like that I had an, an anger issue. And sometimes like, well, I don't know how she married me. I was definitely uh, a bad person. I guess I could say that, but out of the outside, I would wear the right clothes. I quit wearing t-shirts. I quit wearing these things. I would wear nice button shirts. I'd wear darker pants. I wanted to start wearing dress pants. I know like even my brother, one older than me, he's like, he never, he was never religious, but he said he, they wanted to leave the old colony, but he didn't dare himself to because he said, man, then what he would get from me, like how I would approach him and you know, he would the relationship would be done. Right. Yeah. Like there was, I know I had a cousin that I'm not sure if he was saved, but he, he left the, the old colony. And I remember him trying to witness to me or tell me, get me thinking a little bit. And I just, you know, I was the kind of guy that would get right in the face and say, so you think this is of the devil or not? Just tell me, do you think I'm of the devil or not? So it was a hard 
for people to respond to me when I would have that attitude, right? So sounds like you were after you got your little religious conversion, it sounds like you were very much like I was, I mean, maybe even more extreme than I was in some ways, but I changed my wife's clothing style and her hairstyle and all that too while we were dating because it just wasn't good enough. She was Rhinelander and Old Colony was a little more strict, right? So longer skirts, don't cut your bangs and that kind of stuff. But it's amazing what religion will do, right? Like here you're putting on this great front. You don't watch movies. You don't do sinful things. And yet you're abusive, borderline abusive to your wife, right? Like that's incredible that religion would let you get away with that, so to speak, right? And, you know, and that's what it was like, sometimes I, like thinking back now, I'm like, I don't even see how I did that. You know, even thinking how good I was, but there was, there was a time that, you know, even with, with my hand, I would whack my wife on the back of the head. Right. Like I was, and, and yeah, I know it's, it's, it's hard for me. I've never shared this. So even people in Bible truth, won't, people around me don't even know this because it's so embarrassing to me that this is the kind of man that I was, but this is who I was, right? This is, this is the attitude I had. It looked good on the outside. You know, I, I started getting into getting into, like in church, man, we would not skip a Sunday. We would be there. I would give money. And then here I was, this is, I was way working myself to heaven, but the secret sins that I had, the anger that I had, it just, you know, took over. I know my wife was crying all the time and, and, and just the anger that I had at this time, we didn't have any children. Um, so this went on for, for a few years. Um, it got better. I, I would say that it got better. I, you know, maybe controlled my temper a little bit, but I still had that anger, anger issue for the first couple of years in our marriage until, until I got saved. Right. So. Wow, man, man. So how, how did you finally get to the gospel? How did it get to you? So I would read my Bible all the time. So that was another thing. I went and grabbed the voltage Bible as a religious man and I would read. Man, I could quote scripture. I could, I could tell you Bible stories. And I grew up with my dad really enjoyed the Bible. So my dad would always tell us Bible stories and all this stuff, but never the gospel, never understanding, never being persuaded by, by the gospel. We were never persuaded. I would say that I was never persuaded by it. I knew when somebody says, do you know this stuff? Like, yeah, I would do it, but it, it wasn't real to me. It was sure he died for me. And, but it was still like, I still needed to do this. So but I, so I started getting a desire to tell me, I got to do something else. We got to get involved in stuff. So I already, you know, with another couple, we were like, Hey, let's get together in the evenings and sing together. And let's do this stuff as a religious man. I'm like, I could already see that. Hey, something's not right here. Something's not right with my life. Something's not, not the way it should be. So we actually, John Bolt, they came over. Uh, so I grew up with him in Ontario and he got saved in Ontario. So they moved out here years after. And they just came out to our house and he started talking different. And for some reason, usually I would have been defensive or I would have shut him down and tell him to leave my house. But they came over and for some reason I was interested in what he had to say. After they left, I said to my wife, I'm like, you know, as a religious old client, I said, hey, we should pray for them because, man, they're completely lost. (laughs) For some reason, something, the things that he said, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but something just got to me and i remember the next sunday i wanted to hang out with them again but i didn't after we didn't we didn't see them for probably a year two years after then i already wow. had been saved so we went out to another couple's house and i don't even know if this couple was saved at this time but we went to another couple's house and we were just sitting there we already had a son at this time and my boy was born and we um we sat in the house and right across this couple's house there was a, a gathering 
with a bunch of Dicha Okolani people, and they were flying airplanes with remote airplanes. And this guy's like, hey, let's go see what they're doing. So we went out there and checked it out a little bit. And all these men were drunk. They were all drinking and you know having dirty talk, and all the kids around. And this really bothered me. I'm like, man, why are they doing that? Why, mm-hmm. like, that's that's evil. Like, thinking here, I'm a, I'm a better person. But they were just dirty talk and cussing, and, and the little kids were around. They're all drunk, and there was beer bottles everywhere, whiskey bottles. And as we went inside, that guy's wife said, "Man, doesn't it feel like the devil is in every corner?" And for some reason, it hit me so hard because I'm like, "That's how I feel in my own house." Here I am, such a a good person, a religious person, and but these people are so bad. But what that lady said just doesn't it feel like the devil is in every corner. And I'm like, that's how I feel in my own house. And it hit me. It really, it really bothered me. I'm like, something is not right here. And then with that same couple, we got into a conversation about the head covering. Out of all the head covering, I'm like, here's a religious man. And they were already saying, well, the head cover is not, head covering is not necessary. And they were pointing me to scripture. And I was, but this preacher said this, this preacher said this, this preacher said this. And the guy's like, yeah, look, look what the Bible says. And I just could not say anything. So that night, actually, when we went home, I remember going home and, and just thinking deep in thought. It was about an hour drive. And I'm, I'm just deep in thought thinking. And I asked my wife, I'm like, what if everything that we believe in is not true? That got me questioning. I'm like, just because of these few things that were brought up at that couple's house, I'm like, you know, I'm like, they didn't even share the gospel. They were sharing head covering topic with me. But that were, got me. They were basing their their understanding straight out of the book, not just from tradition, right? Like, so yeah. it was a challenge to your faith. Where we we claim to believe this book, but if what I believe doesn't line up with that book, then maybe these people have something that I don't understand. They so what if the whole thing I've been taught? Yeah. yeah. No, and that's what it was. Like it just seemed like, man, if I'm wrong in this, then it means that I'm most likely wrong in a lot of other things. So that whole time, I just could not wait to get home and start reading my Bible. I just could not wait. And um, so on my on my way, on, on when we got home, the first thing I did, I went and grabbed my Bible. For some reason, it ended up in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says that we're not saved. We're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. That's, and that, like, to me, that was a big thing. It says, man, that I can't brag. That just got to me. It's like I was persuaded by the you, gospel. You were reading that. You were reading that in German then? Yeah. Yeah. So that was something I was reading in German. At this time, like, I had learned how to read the low German Bible already. I've been reading it a lot, but my eyes were close to it. It was like I was never persuaded by it. I was never, you know, it's like, and I've used this example before. It's like sometimes when the Bible tells us to seek, you know, I, when I've shared the gospel with people, you guys are like, well, what do I do? You know, I had a, a guy the other day telling me his sins and i'm like hey don't confess to me he's like I, I, I gotta do something what do i do and i'm like just seek the lord i'm like it's like when you seek god and you're like if i tell somebody hey look i jumped off of a, a, a tower or a bridge or something somebody's like there's not a chance they can just choose to believe that it's like i can't just choose to believe that i'm like i just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me i'm not persuaded by that you're telling me this i'm like just search for it search seek if these things are true what i'm telling you yeah. so this guy goes and starts doing research and research and research and all of a sudden, another guy's like, look, here's a video. He was wearing a parachute. He jumped off. And that was the same thing that happened to me. It's like I was seeking the Lord. And all of a sudden, the Lord opened my eyes. And he, it, this became reality to me. This became true to me. I was per- completely persuaded about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
that was for my salvation. That was enough. There was nothing that I could add. My works were a filthy rag. There was nothing that I could do to now earn salvation. I think that's where it was just an amazing thing. It's like, you, it's, it's so supernatural, but it's so simple. It's, you know, a person on the outside looks at it and it's like, that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. And I tell them, like, seek the Lord. Some, sometimes you even look back on, say, even yours or my old colony upbringing, and people would ask, well, did you not know that Jesus died? Of course we did. Did you not know that Jesus died for sinners? Well, I think so. That seemed to be information that we had. So what's the difference? Well, I think the difference is, like you said, were you actually persuaded of this? Was it something that you now banked your life on? You know, there's a, there's a lot, there's a quite a large difference between someone who believes something intellectually and someone who has placed their faith in something, right? You can, you can quote facts. Many people, even at our churches probably know the facts of the gospel, but when it comes down to the, the nitty gritty and it really have to bank on something, where does your faith lie in? Where, what are you persuaded of, right? So once yeah. the gospel was presented in that way, you're, you moved your faith from your religious works, from your outward duty, from all your, you know, old, you know, old colony presence. You moved it from your confidence in that, and you moved it into what Christ had done, eh? Yeah, so, and that, that was, did it for me, just that little conversation and me seeking the Lord in this and understanding that, wow, this is, it's not my works, because this was a big thing for me. Like, I really did think that if anybody had a chance, even with the anger issues that I had, but if anybody had a chance, it would be me. Like, I'm like, man, if anybody, if I stand by anybody's going to heaven, it's going to be me. I mean, I'm, I'm reading the Bible every day. I'm, I, I'm starting to learn high German. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this. And I know only one, only one major heart. issue, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, this can't be that bad. I'm like, I'm trying. So, and you know, I would feel guilty. It wouldn't be like, I felt guilty. Didn't feel guilty, but, but it's just the life change there. After that was done, I now I could not even imagine. After that happened, I could have never even imagined touching my wife or being angry at my wife like that. Like we have very small disagreements, arguments. I would say I think our marriage is stronger than it ever has been. Just about this, it's going on eleven years now. So it's it's great. I could never see myself do anything like that again. I completely, Christ freed me from that. No bondage and and that issue anymore. So definitely definitely changed like crazy so i had this uh, after i got saved it wasn't i brought that same charismatic or, or zeal with me when i got saved i started calling my i remember calling my siblings and saying hey do you know that that covering we don't need to wear because <laughs> that got me so i'm thinking this is going to get everybody right like if they can understand that this is wrong then everything they'll understand that the gospel is and i scared a lot of people off because i you know, started calling and you know, people that I knew, I just started witnessing to them and in a way maybe that I, maybe, I didn't know how. Maybe focusing on the wrong things sometimes, right? Not persuading them yeah. of Christ, but trying to persuade them of your liberties that you now have. Yeah. And that was a big thing for me. So I remember even with my wife's side of the family, um, she got worried right away because I started listening to uh, God. What's that church in Purple there? Lighthouse Gospel? Yes, Lighthouse Gospel. I remember hearing a testimony from that Henry Wall, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. And that testimony, I was already saying at this time, but that just really clarified everything to me because I remember in that testimony, when he's telling his testimony, how when he's, they, the, the people in his the dark are they seen that airplane flying there. Yeah. And they were all scared because they'd never, never seen that before. And that really got to me because I'm like, that just clarified it to me that I'm like, we shouldn't be scared, you know? We're saved. Why are we scared of everything that's around us? Why are people so scared about the end times? Why are people scared of that? It just kind of clarified that I don't have that fear anymore. Kind of clarified mm -hmm. that, look, I have salvation. I know where I'm going, right? So 
And so, I've been listening to a lot of their messages. So nobody really even preached the gospel to you necessarily when you got saved. You just saw through the book of Ephesians that the work of Christ was a gift, that grace was given to us, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, that's all it was. There was nobody that came and, and gave me the gospel. It was just that I that hit me, and then I not now the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ made sense to me. Never made sense to me before. That 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 verse in Ephesians, it made sense to me now that that was grace. That was given to us. That was something that worked that Christ did instead of what I had to do. I can't brag. It was bragging about Jesus now, right? It's weird almost because you and I both know that there's no credibility to living that religious lifestyle that we live. Like very strict, very religious, very, you know, details, doing all the things, reading your Bible, praying, giving money. It doesn't have any merit in it. But the Apostle Paul says that when he did that, he did it out of a clear conscience. He served God from his youth up, even though he was doing it wrong. He was persecuting the church, and yet God seemed to have overlooked it because he did it out of a pure heart. He did it out of really desperately trying hard to seek what is true and right. And now yeah. you and I, you know, you had secret sin. I had secret sin. But there was a part of me and probably a part of you that really did want to serve God. I know the book of Romans chapter seven, Paul talks about, he says that I would serve God. I want to serve God. In the inward man, there's a real desire. The book of da uh, Psalms, David talks about how I, I walk after God with my whole heart. You know, this is, this was his plea. And yet he failed over and over and over again. Romans chapter seven talks about that plainly until he finally saw who shall deliver me from the body of this death. I thank God through Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? So it's almost like, you're not saved at all by those works, but God seems to overlook that ignorance and that desperate desire to serve him in some capacity, right? Where you really want to please him. Yeah. And then it's, he opens the door and then finally, you know, the light comes on. It's like, boom, everything changes, right? Well, you're like that. Why didn't that make sense back then? Right. You almost get that nonsense. You know, now I think back and sometimes you lose a little, you know, patience with people. You're like, don't you get it? But then it's like, well, I was there too. Right. And, you know, that's why you start, you know, people have different, that's why I love how ministry works. People get approached in a different way. You know, I know I have way more of a, uh, let's get her done kind of attitude or maybe a little harsh sometimes yeah. while there's other people that can do it in a softer way. Right. So I find that there's definitely different approaches. I know even when we, you know, if we went, we went street preaching every Saturday for a couple of years there. And I remember my approach to people, people got offended or, or defensive right away. Just my approach to their uh, situation while, you know, like I know even John Bolt, his approach was different. So it was almost like there were certain people that he could reach more than that I could reach more because we both kind of yeah. had a different testimony. We both kind of knew what we came from or how, what, what really affected us. So that's why I think that sometimes when I use that, that approach to people that affected me so much, I try to use that while other people don't. I've, I've definitely been there too. I'm a bit, I can be a bit abrasive, a bit too much in the face of some people, but it's the exact thing that wins some people. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't, you have to learn with some wisdom to know when to kind of tone it down and when to pick that up, because there's definitely times when the book of Jude talks about how on some having compassion and others pulling them out of, so, so to speak, out of the fire, hating even the garment that's spotted by the flesh, right? So there's, you have to start to make a little difference. Sometimes somebody just needs some compassion and a tender word and to, to, to be shown that God loves them. The next person needs to see that no amount of your right doing is anywhere near good enough. And you are a horrible, wicked sinner. And apart from Christ, you have no hope, right? And that, that yeah. might shake somebody up. 
and the next yeah. person just needs kindness and gentleness so we can learn that ourselves but then also we can like you were saying you can you can start to recognize okay this brother here he's almost never harsh and direct but he's winning people that i can't so we you know yeah. we give credit to the rest of god's body christ's body right yeah no and that's the thing too you know after that we got uh have been saved and for a while there we were jumping you know we went from one group of people to the next church to the next church because we didn't know we didn't know where we didn't know where to go right because uh it seemed like i learned pretty quickly a lot of things like i was digging into the word digging into the word and you know you started listening to this one guy online and okay i don't believe that and then you went to this group you know this church for a while and you left there and we went stayed did a little you know for like six seven months didn't go anywhere just stayed at home so it's definitely after you know you get saved i was always the kind of person that hey let's not just sit around i don't want to be a bench warmer i'm like gotta do something so right away when we got saved we started doing um uh, we did a couple of compassion events we actually had like five i think 500 people come out to some of these 500 yeah and it was as young believers we didn't know what we were you, doing you but organized we organized it group right away. what's that you guys organized yeah. it yourselves yeah yeah, me and a couple of our friends, we organized it and we had, uh, you know, we have some talented musicians in our, in our group, even today. Uh, and uh, we're like, hey, you know, we know Dietrich really like this kind of stuff, these, this kind of music. So we organized it and uh, a bunch of people come out. We got a, rep, a person that represented Compassion Canada, did a little message there or whatever, right? So, you know, we always had a desire to do things like this, but it was like we had no discernment we had no wisdom in this so i think a lot of things could have been done different and uh i think we did three or four of these and then after that we did you know some small ones but then we like i said we got went from church to church and all of a sudden like i don't even know where to go at this point right and then that's when we started going to uh a baptist church out in uh coldale alberta and uh, well it was in lethbridge at the time and we started going to this church because we seem like hey, these guys actually believe very similar to what what i did right so that's where we started going and went there for about two years and that's actually where i i would say that i got a strong desire to to preach to go into the ministry right so we did an outside outside event out in Tabor for the first time and i kind of set it up and uh, we had a preacher come down from edmonton and I remember he preached a message about going onto a, a roller coaster. He says, when you're in there and when it straps down, that means you're in. And if for some reason that hit me so hard, I went and talked to the pastor there. Then I'm like, hey, I, I don't know if this is really hard for me because where I come from, you don't go tell somebody, hey, I think I have a desire to go preach and go into the ministry. So I'm like, this is super hard for me, but I think this is a calling. I'm like, I think this is if God is is trying to tell me something through this message because it, it wasn't one of those messages like, oh, that was good but it, it really hit me hard like it was i couldn't i, I can't contain this i gotta go talk to somebody so that's why i went and talked to i went and talked to the the pastor there and uh I'm like hey i told him the story he's like oh i know i'm like what do you mean he's like oh i know you're called to go into the ministry that was just a good confirmation for me too i'm like really he's like oh yeah that kind of stuff leaves an impression right yeah so that's cool yep. And then you guys were ordained at the Baptist church to help out with some of the ministry. And yeah. So then we got to, so John Bolt, uh, also from Bible truth there, they, they went there for quite some time. That's why we started going there. Cause I knew him and then we got, uh, uh, together and then he, you know, invited us there and we started going there and then he was already uh, teaching the teens. And then I got into teaching the teens and then 
he was also called to, to preach. So when after after a while he ordained us both into the ministry just to you know take over. I would I wouldn't preach regularly. Probably when we had this COVID stuff and we did a lot of online stuff, then I would say we did. I did probably did every other week because they had they had a Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, and a Wednesday night service, right? So I would say that I probably preached every other week, one of them. And then before the COVID, I'd probably preach once a month, I would say. Okay. So, and then, you know, it's like, okay, we want to start a, another group, go do a, more of an outreach. Um, so we went to, to Tabor, which we, before we were in Coldale, it's only like half an hour. This is so me and John started actually in our, our, our house. So the first service that we had was just as, as a two years, so it's about two years now we did it in our, our house and, uh, started renting a shop and that little shop filled up pretty quick. And then we went and rented an auditorium and then the COVID hit again. And then we actually did it in a basement and we had up to a few times we had up to a hundred people in the basement. Wow. So it's pretty tight. And then, yeah, just kind of been from building to building, um, been a little hard, but keep picking at it. You, uh, I, obviously you left that Baptist group altogether. You, I, I know you had some Iraqi, exit there but it sounds like hopefully you've kind of smoothed things over and things are okay with you and them yeah yeah no we don't uh, we don't get together with them anything but i don't have nothing against them and i don't think they have we have friends that still go there um if i run into the pastor there's no no issues nothing there uh, that's good there's no issue there but yeah i was just i think it's always you know when there's a group that leaves off it always seems to be of some somewhat of a a bumpy road because yeah. You know, somebody's not going to agree with it, right? Somebody's not going to like it, and and you know, our, our some of the, the the teachings that we were holding in doctrines were different, anyways. It was pretty hard sometimes to preach there because there was quite a bit. Like it seemed to everybody, it seemed like there was only a few things that we disagreed on, but there was actually quite a bit. So it was pretty hard when, you, especially when you're teaching the teenagers, you're like, well, I don't want to say this now because I know he's against this, right? So it was super hard to do that because it seems like we weren't free to teach, you know. Uh, the council, the whole council of God, because of, uh, and I think it comes with kind of a denomination or, you know, even though they, you know, like a Baptist or a Mennonite, whatever, they, they call themselves independents, dependent, and they are in a sense, but it's almost like they have a, a certain creed that they have to follow, right? And that's what it kind of seems like, so. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some value and some benefit to some accountability where you can't just uh, start believing all kinds of random stuff. I know some of the things that I've kind of started to believe and have grabbed onto, I can see that there's a, a path beyond that, maybe not really connected, but maybe an extreme view of a certain doctrine. And you can see it leads down a pretty bad path. And so sometimes I think structure and uh, having a group of people that also believe something similar can really be a safety net, right? Where it keeps you from just going, going too extreme. Like I, I left to myself, my gifts would be very one-sided. My understanding would be very one-sided. And so we do need each other to kind of balance our views off of each other. But at the same time, if you can't just speak plainly what you believe and you're always kind of holding back and like, oh, I don't know if I should say this, that's not healthy either. So we have to be able to speak the truth and be humble enough to recognize that, okay, this guy, clearly a brother, doesn't believe quite what I do. Let's, let's sort it out or let's agree to disagree on this for now, right? Until we can yeah. come to grips with it. And you know what, that, I was, we've been saying the same thing. It's like, I'm already aware that there's probably, there's stuff that I'm probably wrong on, right? And I'm, I'm okay with that. And even me and John have talked about that. It's like, there's things that me and him have a, a little, probably a little disagreements on that we will debate on, 
there's nothing I, you know there's nothing wrong with that that will be like hey let's 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 debate this because i'm like i want to understand where you're coming from i find that the biggest issue is when people don't want to reason right they don't want to reason with another person you don't see where they're coming from and i find even when you you know i you, you know as you, you preach a message or anything sometimes it's pretty hard to bring that message across when people don't know where you're coming from you know they let's just say you preach one message it's going to be a one message and these, these people are only going to hear this one message but it could be like a four-part message and it's hard to get that all in there to tell people where you're coming yeah. from because you know we've had this many times somebody's like so did you mean well no that's not what i meant that it sound like it like it's like it's it's pretty hard i think that's why you know there's always needs needs to be grace when you hear people preach or speak or i think hear- I, th- I think this could also be one of the downfalls or one of the uh, dangers of doing what we're now doing is this online ministry you start to you could even, you know, one person can build a bit of a following and everybody believes what this one person believes, maybe. Then they go back into their churches and they'll say things just point blank and it, there's no context around it. There's no real clear explanation of it. And then it causes contention and issues. So I think having an actual physical group, which the Bible, when the Bible uses the word church, it is the gathering together of saints. And so when you and I are gathering virtually online, it's not really genuine church. We can edify one another, we can teach each other, we can build each other up, but true church is the, the mixing together of different people to the point where you, you have to be pitiful to one another, you have to be kind to one another, you have to be courteous, you have to forgive, you have to you know, move on from things. And if you, if you just segregate to your little sects, and you, 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 I'm in this group, you're in that group, and you never work through problems, you won't ever actually build real good church either. And so, you know, there is definitely danger in church hopping or in finding all your information online and never actually sitting face to face with somebody and discussing these things. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's what the issue is in today's society. I think, well, you see it in church and everywhere, you know, people don't want to offend another person or or say anything that's, that's, that's going to be hurting to them. But it's like, sometimes you just, you got to be honest. You got to be truth. It's what the things that unite us is truth. As soon as we think something else unites us is, you know, it's like, I don't want to say that because then it's going to, then it's going to bring us apart. It's like, no, if, if people could just handle truth and that's where I, I, you know, I want to work on this too. It's like somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, I think, you know, tells me that I'm wrong on something or even rebukes me. And I have gotten rebuked many times because I have a big mouth. So <laughs> it seems like, you know, I, I want to take that. I'm like, you know what? You're right. Instead of me, Oh, why did you say that? It's like, no, I'd rather just take it and, and, yeah. and work with it. Right. And, fix it so instead of instead of having getting offended with everything and i think that's that's a big issue now it's everybody gets offended you say the littlest thing and it offends this person offends that person and yeah well i mean you and i i can tell already we could talk for a couple hours and just kind of keep going and going but i want to touch on a few things I, I did a couple messages three short messages on this book the catechism and uh it's gained a bit of traction right people seem to uh, gravitate to it and I haven't really strongly criticized it. I, I showed in this book that you can find very clearly that salvation is by grace through faith, it's through the shed blood, the work of Jesus, only nothing else. And then I've shown also that it's not very common in here. Like it's, you have to kind of search for it. It's not the theme of this book, but it is in there. So if Mennonites believe this book and actually walked according to it, they could understand and know the gospel just like you found it on your own as a Mennonite right so it's there but one of the things that I find that Mennonites maybe get almost the most wrong is their their view of communion 
So the whole Uvent Mall, right? You have the Fulbaretung yeah. and, and then yeah. the Uvent Mall. And it seems like, and maybe you can correct me if your thinking was different, but the basic idea was that, you know, you can kind of sin because everybody sins. And so it's somewhat okay, but try not to. But what one thing you do need to do for sure, even if you're an alcoholic and you only go to church twice a year, make sure you go to Fulbaretung and then go to Uvent Mall. And in that week time, you know, you go and confess your sins to God. Maybe if you can find somebody to confess your sin to as well, a preacher or somebody that you harmed or did wrong, you go do that. And then you go ahead and take communion because that's the only way you're going to be saved. You might not be saved either way, but if there's any hope for you, it's in, it's in taking that Lord's Supper. It's in taking the communion. And I never realized why they would believe that, but I was reading through this article nine of the Lord's Supper. And there's one little portion of that. They get most of it right. They recognize, like the Catholics believe that the, the bread actually turns into the body of Jesus. The blood actually turns into the blood, of, or the wine actually turns into the blood of Jesus. And so they think they're actually eating the body and eating the, the drinking the, the blood in order to get saved, and, you know, slowly become more sanctified. The Mennonites broke away from that, and they were harshly persecuted for this back in the 1600s, right? But they do kind of still hold a little bit to that idea. It says here this, what is truly signified by this breaking of the bread and the drinking from the cup is this, just as bread and wine serve for the nourishment of the body, in the same way, our souls are nourished by the body and blood of Christ. I agree. You know, John chapter six, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But they, they don't seem to understand that it's just strictly believing. The way we eat the body and drink the blood is by believing on Jesus. When we take the bread, when we take the wine, all we're doing is remembering and we're signifying. And then he says this here, through and by this eating and drinking, our souls are nourished and preserved to eternal life. Therefore, dear souls, we put, must put no trust in the outward signs or things, but must much more place our whole faith in the true substances. For outwardly, we eat and drink with the mouth, nothing more than the natural bread and wine. So they recognize that's not actual body. It's not actual blood. But he says this, but inwardly in the soul, we receive through faith, the true body and blood of Christ. So to me, I feel like they, they, the whole transubstantiation, consubstantiation, we don't have to define those terms, but that was what the Catholics and the Mennonites kind of argued about. But the Mennonites still say that while you're taking communion, you're spiritually taking in more of the body and more of the blood. To me, that whole thing is completely off. What, what are you thinking? What's your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, it's because uh, just like you were saying, and where we grew up from, it's it's a thing, it's almost like, okay, after you leave that place, after you go to Uvamol or communion, you leave and you're going to feel more spiritual. Well, it's a simply a remembrance. It's like we're remembering what Christ did. We're remembering that his body was broken. We're remembering that he spilled his blood. We're remembering that this is the new covenant. This is the new Testament. Instead of us coming in there feeling that we're going to get something spiritual out of it. We're going to go in there. We're going to, now we're going to come out and we're going to be, you know, living more godly. We're going to just, so, it, it, you know, I think that's, and I had this mindset as well when we went there. It's like, okay, you get out of there. It's like, okay, am I, do I feel better now? Do I, it goes right back to the same thing. When you get baptized, you think that when that water comes over you now, man, if I can just die right now. And it's kind of the same thing with, with Uvamol. Yeah. When you eat that, you're like, okay, 
if I die now, at least, you know, I've had the uvum, I've had this now, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually refreshed. And I, you know, I guess what they would say here would probably be even a little bit different, like the catechism would probably be, be a little bit different than what the, the old colony believed. It almost sounds like they probably don't go to, the catechism doesn't go to that extreme as what a lot of the old colony, they would, you know, pretty much say that, you know, this is where you're going to get refreshed or reborn you would almost want to say yeah, the, the way that the wording in here is though it sounds like he's saying that you you slowly almost like incrementally take in more and more of christ as you participate in this I guess, yeah. to me i'm thinking then why in the world would you not do it every week yeah, why wouldn't exactly. you do it every day right like yeah. don't you want more of christ now like you if you're going to yeah. ever get enough of him it better be done a lot why only do it yeah. twice a year right exactly but now we do it more frequently. We do it at our church. We do it every other month. We know some churches that do it every week. And, but the churches that I know of that, that do it more frequently, they're not trusting in what they're doing. They're, they're not placing any faith in that action. Their only hope is, and what they're signifying by it is that I'm trusting in this still. I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus. I'm trusting in the, the broken body of Jesus. That's my only hope whatsoever. No, I think that people also get this idea that, and where it's like, okay, if I do this, then I'm going to get something out of it. It's always like, let me get some out of it. I heard uh, somebody say this, and maybe this is the correct saying, but uh, communion is almost like an anniversary. You know, you you remember. A memorial. Yeah, it's a memorial. That's what you remember, right? And I know the Passover talks about this as well. It's just interesting. um, In Exodus, it talks about how, the past, you know, I'll just read it here. Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse, I'll go to verse 7 here. Exodus 12, 7, it says, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the house where they shall eat it. It's interesting because it's on the two, two side posts and it's on the door, it's on the top door post, exactly where Jesus was bleeding from. You know, you have his, his piercing. This isn't, you know, a type, I would say. And then it says in verse 12, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborns of the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13, And the Lord shall be to you for a token upon the house where ye are and where I see the blood. I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. And when I smite the land of Egypt, and this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generation, and ye shall keep it a feast by the ordinances for you. Just a great reminder, even what's what Christ did. It's like, you know, the, these people, they were going to die if they did not have this blood on the doorpost on e- either side and on the top. Yes. So, and it's the same thing when Christ spilled his blood, when, when, when he broke his body, when his blood was spilled, it's now a memorial for us. It's like, because it, death has passed because of Christ's blood. So I think it's, it's people have this idea that it's something else. I think for the longest time I did, I'm like, okay, you always thought it was something else. It's very simple. It's for us to remember. It's for us. It's a memorial. Yeah. Um, the uh, Jesus even broke that bread and poured the wine on the Passover feast, right? So he was instituting the New Testament communion on the day of the Passover. So it, it's tied very closely with that. And it, it the the Mennonites and I had this very much this mindset when I first became a Christian the first communion that I went to after I got saved I was sitting there waiting for the bread 
And I was so nervous and scared. And I realized that there was something unconfessed in my mind. There was some sin that I had committed that I was scared that if I took this bread, because in 1 Corinthians 11, speaks about communion. He says that he that eateth and drinketh unworthily drinketh damnation to himself, right? And so I quickly ran out, like hurriedly got out of the church building, went to the washroom. And even though I couldn't confess to the person that I had offended, I thought if I at least confess to Jesus quickly, if I really quickly make it up to God, then maybe I can go ahead and partake in this in eating the bread and drinking the wine and not be somehow condemned, right? Because that passage is very clearly talking about if you eat and drink unworthily, you drink and eat damnation to yourself. But that idea too was completely wrong. Many years later, I recognized, I, I for instance, I had lost a bunch of weight when I got became a Christian. I stopped eating, overeating so much. I did some fasting. I lost like 60 pounds. And then slowly my weight crept back up and I was up like 30 pounds more than I was again. And one day I realized like, I've been overeating. I've been, I've been being a glutton here. You know, I'm, I'm eating way too much food and this is not self-control. This is not what God has designed for me to be. But at that point, I already knew enough of the gospel to where I was happy to go to communion that night. Not because I was going to get some forgiveness there, but because I could again say, I have no hope in me. You know, I'm not good enough. I failed again. I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to be worthy enough. And if it wasn't for the body, the broken body of Jesus, if it wasn't for the shed blood of Jesus, I would have no chance. So I'm not, I wasn't unworthy. None of us are worthy of the gospel. We don't become worthy by confessing our sins. The, the only reason he's saying that these people were eating and drinking unworthily, they were doing it not as if they were unworthy, but they were doing it in an unworthy manner. They were doing it unworthily. They were eating and drinking before others arrived. They were doing it in a disorderly manner. They were not considering the Lord's body, the rest of the church and all that. But somehow Mennonites got this idea that if you just confess all your sins, then you're worthy. But that's, that's complete opposite of uh, coming to Christ by grace through faith. We don't come to Christ once we have cleaned ourselves up and then say, okay, now I'm worthy of your forgiveness. We come to God when we're at our worst. We recognize, I have no hope. Here I am, God. Can you save me? And we see the cross. We see the shed blood. And we rejoice that he has saved us when we were unworthy. So you don't become worthy by confessing, right? Yeah. No, and it's just like you said, like in, in Corinthians, people go to that passage there. And you can tell Corinthians had a lot of issues. Just like you said, there's people that, that came there. And they weren't waiting. There's people that came there just to eat and drink. You know, mm -hmm. I've even heard this, actually. I went to a, a communion in, in the old colony, and, and the one guy's like, hey, how much did you drink? How much wine did you drink? You know, it's almost like they came there. Big, sweet. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's like, you know, that's exactly what these, it sounds like the Corinthians, a lot of these people were doing. They were just coming there to, to fill themselves up, and they weren't thinking of what they were doing. And, you know, maybe this, you can give me a little insight on this as well, but because people have asked me, what do, you, what do you do when you go there? What do you think? Because, you know, people are scared of this, right? Because you read a passage like this, there's, that's, he says, that's why there's many weak and sickly among you, right? Yeah. So what would you tell a person, what would be your, his approach to taking this, his mindset, or any, maybe give some insight on that? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a fair bit over the last few years, because there's several passages, and I guess we, we probably won't have time to dig into each one. But in James chapter five, he says that we ought to confess our faults one to another, pray for one another that you might be healed, right? Uh, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much and is working. And if any have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So the idea in James is that if I have done something against you, and you have clearly been offended by me, 
I should come to you and say, look, man, I, I, I shouldn't have done what I did. I confess my fault. I recognize my need. You forgive me and all is well. And then maybe, you know, maybe I was suffering some, from some illness that was just kind of plaguing me constantly, constantly over and over and over again. And maybe if you now pray for me or if we pray over the issue, I might be healed in that situation, right? Or call for the elders and they will anoint that person and, and you can pray for them. They will be healed. So the Corinthian church because they were not considering the Lord's body, meaning considering other members of the church, some were arriving before others and eating, drinking before the others came. It sounds like some might even, there's a little controversy on this, some might even have been drunk, and they just weren't considering one another. And he says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? He says, for this cause, because you're not considering the Lord's body, because you're taking this, this memorial where you should be remembering and and savoring what Christ has done for you. You know, I go up to the communion table and I remember, God, you sent Jesus to suffer in my place. My sin was upon Christ when he was bruised and beaten. It was for my sin that his blood was shed. Thank you so much for what you've done. But if I went there just kind of casually, like drinking two or three bottles of it, or, you know, just guzzling it down and filling my belly, I'm not considering Christ and nor am I considering my fellow brothers in the church. And I think there's, there's, there is quite a plague of sicknesses in churches today. And I think especially those churches that take communion, take uh, brotherhood very lightly, and are kind of casual towards holiness and godliness. So clearly, we should be living righteously. Clearly, we should be confessing our faults one to another. Clearly, we should be having a clean conscience before God. But none of that makes us worthy to take communion. Yeah. We take communion because we remember what he did. And we're going to continue to take communion until he comes back. And so I don't know if that totally answers the question, but yeah. it's, it's both. Like you don't, you don't get prepared to take communion by becoming holy and righteous because you'll never be good enough then. You yeah. should never take communion. There's always going to be some fault that you forgot. We take communion because remember what he did for us. And then we try to live holy. We try to respect our brothers and we try to reverence God for what he's done. And I think then we will have more healthy people in the church. A lot of the, a lot of sicknesses in the church, I think, are as a result of, and I think scientists, psychologists, a lot of these people are now proving to us as well that if you live with bitterness, you're going to have heart problems. If you live with anger, you're going to have this kind of problem. If you, a lot of times women that are very bitter towards other women develop breast cancer and, and it's proven across the board. Like this happens over and over again. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold as to say every woman that has breast cancer is bitter, but I don't know of one preacher that he would ask that question. If they came to him with breast cancer, he would say, which woman are you bitter against? And almost every time it was clear. And so there's a lot of health issues that result from our bad attitudes, from our bitterness towards other people, from unforgiveness, from the resentment, from anger and all that kind of stuff. But those aren't, we don't try to get rid of all that to remember the, the death of Jesus. So communion is kind of separated from that. And yet he says, if you are taking communion and not being conscious of holiness towards God and love towards your brethren, you're going you're gonna to get ch chastened by God. God's going to come after you and cause physical sickness, you know, weak, sickly, and many fall asleep. So some people were actually put to death, it sounds like. And that, I mean, that's maybe that's a whole different topic. I'm not sure. No, that's really interesting because I know like communion, you would, it's, it's a, it's a communion with other believers here. It's a mystery that was been revealed that not just Christ in us, but we're in Christ as a, as a body. And, you know, there's so much issues in the body. And just like you were saying, people are holding bitterness and unforgiving someone or gang goes right back to be so easily offended. 
with someone, right? So, no, it's a, it's a very interesting. Uh, I think it's been overcomplicated. The same thing as baptism. It's it's the topic has been overcomplicated. People can't just take it, read it, and and remember it. It's and that's why you know I was asking this question because so many people because where where we come from. People are almost scared. You know, I know for me, it was almost a burden to go to these things because I'm like, am I ready, man? Am I, am I, am I going to die? Am I, what's going to happen, right? If you were scared to go there, if you had an unconfessed sin, if you weren't perfect, you know, you'd almost say. So I think even as a Christian, a lot of people have that question, well, what do I need to get rid of? What do I need to stop? What do I do, right? So, yeah, I, I know of one preacher that I've listened to, and you, I know you've listened to this guy before, too. He said that one time years ago, he was leading a small group and they were meeting in this building in town and they were taking communion regularly. And he said he recognized that the people that were gathering together with him, he was leading out, that they weren't taking it seriously, that they were just too casual in their participation of communion. They weren't reverencing God and they were, you know, just too frivolously eating and drinking. And he said he felt very clearly that God was warning him, you better tell these people to take this seriously. Now, you know, take communion in remembrance of what he's done, not with a careless attitude, and make sure you consider the rest of the people that God has has saved, right? That you love those people. And he said he didn't warn them. He thought, well, they're enjoying themselves. They're having a good time. And as a young man, he got like some kind of brain aneurysm happened that day. And he, he almost died for years. He had um, loss of memory and, you know, real serious mental issues because of it. And he says, there's no doubt in his mind, he knows for sure that God chastened him. So I, I don't know. I've had little things like this happen, not in, in regards to communion directly, but I've caught myself being tempted by a certain sin, gave into the temptation too much, and then, you know, turn around and whack my head. It may seem silly to some people, but it's like, okay, God, thank you for the reminder. Even if that's not what it was, I'm going to take it as that, and I'm not going to toy with this sin, and I'm going to make sure that I you know, keep short accounts with people. And I want to make sure people know that I, if I've offended them, that I'm, I'm sorry for it. And I want to make it up to them. And, you know, that's all good and right. Just don't mix the two together and think that by confessing, by ridding yourself of sin, that you somehow become worthy of it. He's worried. He's concerned more with the manner in which you remember, rather than if you're perfect in every way, when you take it. In fact, if you find yourself to be a sinner, if you find that you have failed, all the more reason to remember that he died for you, right? And how unworthy we actually are. Yeah. Right? So I think there's one verse that here that just, you know, you were saying that when verse First uh, Corinthians 11, 32, it says, but when you are judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. It's actually comforting. You know, it's like Psalms 23 says, thy rod and my staff, they comfort me. It's actually mm-hmm. a comfort when the Lord chastens us you know, just like you were saying, well, you kind of hit your head, you hit your head when you walked away or something like that. It's almost a comfort that knowing that the Lord is is looking out for you. He hasn't just left you. You know, it's 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 a, just like a parent or your child is supposed to feel that when when you discipline your child, that rod is supposed to be a comfort to your child, right? It's Absolutely. Like, wow. So it's 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 just pretty amazing that that you know even sometimes it seems like it's a it's an absolutely terrible thing in our behalf. It is, but for the Lord, it's like we're still His children, and He's we're unworthy but he's still chasing us and loving us and you know let's say even if you all of a sudden found that there was some pretty severe sicknesses or illnesses in your congregation and then you discovered that it was because you were not walking worthily you were not walking righteously that should be a a cause for joy to know that god is concerned with how i walk 
If he didn't care, he would just let us do whatever he wants, whatever we want. Just go for it. I don't care how you live. But now to know that God is so invested in my life and in our church that he won't let us continue on that way. So you can almost use, you know, your weakness and sickness and, and uh, sudden deaths, maybe to a degree, you can use it as a barometer to know if God's actually chastening us. Because the Bible says that whom he loves, he chastens. So if yeah. you're a, a, not a bastard and if you're a son, he will come after you. He won't let yeah. you go. So to me, this is a comfort and a joy. But at the same time, a lot of people are so afraid now that they don't bother taking communion. It's not like there's some special power in the blood or the bread and the wine so that if you take it now, suddenly God's going to turn on the, the punishment. You know, If you're living in sin and you're a godly person, if you're living in sin and you're trusting Jesus, he's going to come after you whether you take the communion or not. So the communion is supposed to get our mind right again and say, oh, yeah, that's right. I have no hope but Jesus. I have no confidence but the blood. I have nothing to offer but the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. I'm not eating his body and it's slowly becoming a part of me. I'm just remembering again and again that I need the sacrifice of Jesus and it's my only hope. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, I guess our, our hour is about up there. I don't know if you want to add anything yet to the end here or... Well, anybody watching that doesn't believe, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. You trust him, and you can be completely relieved of all your sin and guilt and shame. Amen. Amen.